et Roland Garros en 2005, 2006, 2007, 2008, 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013 et 2014. Nos le vainqueur ici, il est espagnol Rafael Nadal. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Love Means Nothing podcast, episode four. I can't believe we've made it this far, Drew, but um, three episodes under our belt and a lot of good feedback from our friends and from our viewers, so really hoping only to grow it from here. And what we've seen at the French Open is what we'll be discussing on today's episode, and why don't we just... No, the the mid-Roland Garros podcast, which I guess we're not fully in the middle because... We're now into the semifinals of the men's and women's. They've both been set. Um, we're actually recording this right after we've just watched Casper Ruud beat Holger Rune uh, in a really good four-set match. Um, but nothing like these majors, the two-week events, the ebb and flows, the days off. Um, but, uh, yeah, looking forward to talking about Rafa against Djokovic, Alcaraz against Zverev, and the quarterfinals that happened today, as well as the women's draw, but uh, yeah, looking forward to it. I mean, I kind of want to talk about the Casper, the Casper one a little bit because we just saw it uh, against Rude. First time I've seen some sort of controversy in a Casper Rude match. You know, the guy is extremely vanilla, but um, I think we're going to start off with this Rafa against Novak match. I mean, just something that. Vid, I feel like we've been watching these guys since we just started playing tennis. I mean, the, I remember the, my first tournament that I played was the same time Rafa was winning his first Roland Garros. And here we are, like, almost 20 years later. It's the same players, Nadal against Djokovic. And uh, the anticipation for this one was off the charts. I actually had it on on the big screen in my, in my, uh, at my place of work. Everyone was talking about this, even not tennis fans. Um, we both predicted Djokovic to come out of this section. And honestly, yeah, neither of us really thought uh, – we both thought Djokovic was going to come through. Uh, so, I, I don't know. What were your thoughts kind of on that match, uh, the outcome, um, and what it looks like for Nadal here as he tries to get another Roland Garros title? Yeah, I mean, like you said, both of us thought that – Djokovic was going to come through. I don't think we can say that it's crazy that Nadal came out as he did, but I just don't think it was expected. I mean, he is dominant on these courts, and there's clearly something different about these courts as opposed to Rome, as opposed to Monte Carlo, and everywhere else. But um, I'm surprised as much as I can be surprised with, with Nadal kind of coming out so hot and just just really – First set, Djokovic wasn't playing well. Nadal was executing his game plan. And that's kind of how it continued throughout the match. The Joker had some glimpses of putting things together. But really, honestly, Nadal was just too strong. And I think it looked like Djokovic was trying to implement that same game plan that he did last year. But really, Rafa wasn't allowing for it because he was standing much closer to the baseline, which... You rarely see it. Actually, to be honest, this is the closest I've seen Rafa stand on the baseline. This is the most I've seen him hit through the ball ever, really. And I thought that really worked well for him. It was either going to work very well or could have gone poorly because it's not his usual uh, game style. But he executed perfectly. And 
I think he implemented that game plan because the match was at night. He knew he had to tweak his game, his game plan a little bit, and it seemed to work for him. So it was really fun to watch. And even when Novak had those times in the match where he upped his level and kind of took it to that next gear, Rafa always had the answer. I would see perfect points from Novak and at the end of the point, it's just a winner out of nowhere from Nadal. So I think it was all Rafa, a great job. Yes, Novak started a little slow, um, maybe had uh, some time in the fourth set where he wasn't playing great, but it was all Rafa who just kind of dominated them, that match from the start to the end, really. Yeah, no, it seemed like on the pressure points as well, if you saw the pressure points graphic, you know, 30-all, 30-40, deuce, um, Nadal just simply had – the upper upper hand uh, and tactically you're correct honestly because uh, in 2021 Roland Garros Nadal actually hit more backhands than he hit forehands the only time that's ever happened on clay at the at Roland Garros today he hit 337 forehands and 266 backhands so you can see the strategy there he's uh, implementing his game plan and honestly when these two play it's really about who can impose their will on the other guy. Whoever can impose their game style, whoever can dictate the point is the one that's going to be coming out on top. And honestly, Vid, you're right. He had an answer for, Rafa had an answer for everything that Novak threw at him. And honestly, there were some shades of this, of the Australian Open final against Medvedev when you just saw Medvedev kind of run out to a two-set lead and you just didn't see Rafa coming back. Rafa went up, you know, the, the match started, we'll talk about it being a night match, but it started, it was kind of still day out. Rafa started dominating. Then he went up a break in the second. Um, and then Novak kind of came back. And as he's, as Novak started to build that energy and build that momentum in the second set and come kind of power through, kind of looked like he was, Nadal was getting slower and slower and Novak kind of passed him in that second set. I was thinking Novak is going to win this match in four sets. Um, but like you said, just, just Nadal had an answer for everything. Yeah, I'm going to just kind of touch on that one point. You talked about Novak coming back in that second set. Nadal was up, I think it was he was up 3-0. I can't remember if that was one break or two breaks and had a game point or a break point or, and then ended up losing it, where in any other match, that point would have been really insignificant. But you could see on Nadal's face that even though he was up a set and a break, uh, that one point that he lost, it really looked like he had gotten broken in the fifth set when he lost that point. I mean, these guys know that the margins against each other are so fine, and one wrong step can open the door for the other guy, and they can come blasting back, which Novak did in that second set and could have done in the match, but uh, ultimately Rafa was too good. But no, you're spot on, spot on with that. Yeah, I mean, I I think we just have to, first of all, also appreciate that these two guys are still doing it at the level that they're doing it. I mean, to watch this match when they're both in their mid-30s and they're continuing to get better. Like, I, I had flashbacks during this match of the Australian Open final where they played and the level was just so high. I, yeah, I just, it's crazy to me that, they're still doing this. Novak was hitting over 100 miles per hour forehand, and Rafa was actually getting to those with ease. I mean, they, were, they kept countering each other. I think, you know, maybe we got bored or something in 2014, 2015, when the same guys, Rafa and Novak, 
Federer kept making the semis finals of slams, but this is kind of tennis that we're really not going to have the privilege of seeing, I think, for a long time. I agree. I think the level of the other quarterfinal matches was just not there, not even close to the level of Nadal and Djokovic. And back, you know, in the earlier years, it was kind of, I would always root for whoever was the other guy in there. I didn't want Federer, Nadal, Djokovic to win. But, you know, as of the last two, three, four years, it's kind of like, I want to just see these guys dominate and kind of make the rest of the competition, quite frankly, look like clowns because these guys are 36, 35 years old. And we have these guns who are 24, 25 and who are head cases, who don't have it mentally, don't have it physically. And um, it's just amazing to watch. Yeah, I mean, these two guys embody the word champion. And it kind of goes to what Rafa said after the match. And I think this can, we can kind of move on to our topic about how does this match affect the GOAT debate? Because I think this is another one that we're going to be looking back on in, you know, 15, 20 years down the road. Nadal said, you know, Novak, Roger, and myself, we have an incredible story together. The story is so special. It's so emotional. It doesn't necessarily matter who's the greatest, but we were both able to perform for the fans and achieve our dreams. And I personally do agree with that. And I've heard the same kind of sentiment from Roger. But what I do think is that Novak truly believes that he is the greatest. So you don't hear the same kind of uh, conversation from him. And I honestly saw no, I think with that kind of attitude that Nadal's had for the past I don't know, year, this year, managing his foot, kind of knowing he has the limited time left. He's kind of just been enjoying his time on court. Whereas with Novak, you can see him kind of ever since that U.S. Open final, what he went through in Australia, not chasing so much, but the pressure has kind of got to him. I mean, in the beginning of the fourth set tiebreak, I was thinking, you know, because Novak doesn't beat Rafa in tiebreaks. He's ne- he hasn't beaten him at a, in a tiebreak at Roland Garros for five years. Uh, Rafa hasn't beaten Novak in a tiebreak. So I was like, okay, even though Novak did have a set point in this fourth set, he's going to come out on fire. But he just seemed a little tentative. And when you get a little tentative against a guy like Nadal, a shark like Nadal, he notices that and he pounces on it, right? So I think Novak's backhand was a little lower in confidence, didn't, didn't have the ability to kind of hit angles, open up the court as much in his backhand because of that confidence. And he also overused the drop shot, bailing out of rallies way more than Rafa did. Overall, just uh, just more solid. So I think from a mental aspect, this almost having this injury from Nadal and knowing the end may or may not be near has kind of freed him up to even play with with a bigger game because he's just appreciating kind of being out there on the court. And that that quote kind of uh, embodies that, right? Just just happy to be out there and be a part of history and compete on uh, Philippe Chatre at Roland Garros. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I think with regards to the pressure points that you were talking about, it was clearly Nadal winning all of them. In the past, you kind of think of Djokovic out of the three guys as the most most clutch to come up big on the pressure points against Federer in 2019 Wimbledon, saving those match points at the U.S. Open against Federer. Um, we're always thinking of Novak as a guy who was kind of clutch, but Nadal really showed that he was kind of that man in this match, winning all the big points. And your point about kind of the legacy and what this means, Nadal 
I totally agree with you. He's playing kind of like it's his last hurrah and taking advantage of every match. And I really love that the difference in attitudes between all three guys and Nadal saying that the number of grand slams doesn't really matter is what he wants to say. Extremely classy. Love that from him. And I love it shows he's a true champion as all three of these guys are. But I also love from Novak, the fact that he's willing to say, I want to win more Grand Slams than anyone else. And he, in his mind, believes that that will get him to be the considered the best in the world. So uh, I love both those guys and how they come come at it. And I love that they're sticking to their point. They're not kind of trying to echo what the other guy is saying. And they're just kind of staying true to themselves. So I respect both their kind of takes on kind of the GOAT debate. I, I personally, I don't know what I think. Because every time I think one way something else happens you know yes it's, it's, I will say because we we used to say you know when before this year when we thought Novak was going to fly past Roger and Rafa we would say that me and you would say to each other that oh Nadal and Federer are just saying this because they kind of know yeah, exactly gonna come right. back. but but I mean if Nadal if Nadal has cha- had changed his tune and said oh it does matter then he would have looked like a total kind of dick you know it would make no sense that everyone should hate him for that and he didn't and I don't think he would have changed his mind I think he's a classy guy kept kept it straight with what he was saying before Novak is going to continue to keep it straight saying he wants to win the most grand slams and I think it's just they just kind of differ in their approach yeah I mean I think we were honestly underestimating Nadal coming into the season but also coming to the French Open Kind of made a little bit of sense because he hadn't made a final this year on clay, but <laughs> it's almost like you say with a caveat when you predict Novak's going to win the tournament, I'm never going to count out Nadal. But you're just saying that because you know he's going to, he continues to prove you wrong as opposed to actually not counting him out. Like in, in my head, I was thinking Novak is definitely, uh, you know, going to come through in this tournament. So yeah, I mean, the, it, when it comes to the GOAT debate, there's so many aspects to it. And then once you get so close in Grand Slams, you kind of have to look to other things, right? Like your legacies off the court, maybe a Masters 1000 titles, epic matches, head-to-head matchups. So for me personally, after watching the level of tennis and the creativity on the court, I think I'm more in the Rafa camp right now that it just doesn't matter. These three guys, they pushed each other. They made each other better. They're the three, that we've, the three greatest that we've ever seen. And I guess that could change, you know, if Novak wins, like, multiple Grand Slams again. But I personally, after watching this and just coming to that realization that we're ending this era and that we don't have that much time of these guys left, I think I'm in the Nadal camp of, I don't know if we have to define who the GOAT is. Yeah, I think at at this stage, I think I'm in in that camp as well. I don't think we need to define who it is. Maybe it'll become clear in the next two, three years, if any of these guys continue playing and continue dominating. But right now, I think it's just kind of respect the legacy of all three of them because it's just kind of remarkable what they're doing. It was also funny. I don't know if you've seen – have you seen the Rolex commercial? Mm, the Federer one? I have seen the Federer Rolex commercial, yes. Yeah. And for those who haven't seen it, it's basically Rolex put out a commercial that – like very cool commercial with Federer, Rolex, all very cool. Basically saying that the number of grand slams doesn't matter. And it's a very, very good commercial. I didn't know whether, why they put it out, whether they were trying to say, just trying to kind of 
didn't they say something like Federer's class is forever or something like that can't yeah. be measured in Grand yeah. Slam wins? Yeah, they were saying like the way the way this man plays tennis will not be defined by a number. Like how classy he is is will not be defined by a number, which is true. Yeah, it is true. But it's also just seemed like an ad bowing out to Novak essentially. I almost feel which like Federer might Federer might care. Federer might care the most out of all of them about this whole goat debate because he was the first guy. He started out. He was on the path to being the goat, and then Rafa came in and started dominating. And then Novak kind of took the took the torch from both of them. So I think because Federer still sees himself as when he started his career dominating everyone, I think maybe he does a little extra of that spice about just not wanting someone else to take that mantle or even to share it right no i think i think that's fair enough this debate will undoubtedly continue throughout the course of this year and probably into the next year and probably even further after that so we'll definitely come back to this topic uh, you can count on that but i think we should move over to the alcaraz Zverev match and talk about what was happening happening over with carlitos and and sasha yeah mm-hmm. let's do it so what were your what were your kind of takeaways from that match? Give me your high level takeaways, thoughts. You know, I know you asked me before the tournament. We kind of had a discussion about this side of the draw. Said could Zverev, if he gets through his opening matches, beat Carlos? And I said I'm just gonna say yes because of the ability the ability that he has, the kind of tennis that he can play. But at the same time, I I didn't believe it. I would not have bet on that. However, watching the match, you could kind of tell that Zverev had been in Grand Slam matches that went five sets before. Because when, when you're playing a Grand Slam match, three out of five sets, you have to know when to put your foot on the gas, ease off the gas, play with your strategy, dictate the, the points. Carlos kind of came out of that match guns blazing, 100% ripping his forehand, ripping his backhand, wasn't strategizing as much. I think his win against Zverev um, in the finals of Madrid gave him a little too much confidence because he said, I'm just going to bl- basically blow this guy off the court with my, with my power, my, my forehand, and just kind of dominate him. But to Zverev's credit, he just held steady there in that first set, and he was the more consistent player. He's the more solid player, which is often not what you say about Zverev. Alcaraz was missing some backhands, missing some forehands. The other thing I noticed was that Alcaraz was not attacking the Zverev forehand enough. He wasn't going uh, down the line enough uh, with his backhand. And Zverev was able to push him back behind the baseline. Like, on average, uh, uh, Alcaraz was 0.6 meters behind the base, further behind the baseline than the rest of his matches. So Zverev was the one that was able to dictate play. And I'm not going to say that Carlos panicked. But I'm going to say that he was surprised that he didn't win the first set. And from there, it kind of uh, snowballed a little bit into the second set. Zverev, again, won better on the clutch points. Um, I, I don't think Carlos caved. I don't think he choked or anything like that. But just too many. He didn't keep it tight enough in the first two sets. Like, I think the third and fourth set, both guys were playing at their peak. Alcaraz was playing amazing. He, he was finding his forehand, backhand. And then the fourth set with the tie break, same thing. Both guys were playing 100%. But because those first two sets, Zverev was able to hold solid and hold steady, he was able to win the match. And I think 
a little bit of inexperience from Alcaraz. I don't think he collapsed or anything like that. I don't think he was affected by the moment. But I do think that this experience for Zverev is kind of starting to pile up a little bit, which gave him uh, the upper hand and gave him his first win against a top 10 opposition uh, in a grand slam, which is good. And he was able to hold his nerve. He won way more of his second serve points than, than Alcaraz. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of my takeaway. Yeah, no, I, I think I agree with that. What we talked about, we actually talked about this before the tournament. We said that um, Carlos hasn't really done it in the Grand Slams. We don't know how he'll handle five sets. Like you said, a five-set match is very different in that you have to pace yourself throughout the match. You're not going, you're not going guns blazing from the start to the finish. And I think Carlos, I agree with you, he didn't do that. I also think that Zverev played a very high level, which we know he's capable of. And I also think that there was no less pressure on Zverev given how well Carlos has been doing. Uh, and especially after getting just freaking worked in that last tournament by Carlos, I think it took a lot of pressure off Zverev. Zverev took the pressure off himself um, by the comments he made at the end of last tournament saying how great Carlos was and how you know he's such a great player and he'll be able to beat anyone, things of that nature. So I think in these no-pressure moments, uh, Zverev is really good. But to win a Grand Slam, you're not going to have, um, you know, moments. You're not going to have – every moment is not going to be no pressure. You're going to be in moments where pressure is high or you're playing someone you should beat in a round where they might not be. And that might be in the final if he beats Nadal. Um, it might, might be against Nadal if he gets – up two sets or two sets to one and also so you're saying that just because of this one win Alex Verev has not answered like the questions for you about the you know playing under pressure because I agree with you he wasn't under pressure this tournament because basically everyone was talking about Alcaraz and like beating Alcaraz is just only a positive losing is not that much of a negative exactly it's all positive he, he was 0-11 against I just don't think that that fact that he had lost 10, 11 straight to top 10 players in majors was weighing on his mind in this match. No, because, because it was a quarterfinal match. It wasn't a semifinal match. It wasn't a final match. He wasn't even thinking about the trophy. That's not even in his mind. So that's why I don't think he was, this match necessarily answers that question. Although he played great, and he, but he also didn't, that tiebreak, he didn't close out strong. He went, got nervous in the tiebreak. And, and started started pushing in the tie break. And Carlos, the one kind of tactical mistake that I think he made is in that fourth set tie break that he lost, he was bringing Zverev into the net way too much with the drop shots. Especially, he shouldn't have done that after he noticed that Zverev was getting nervous because everyone knows if you've played tennis, and tell me if you disagree, if you're coming to the net, if you're tracking down a drop it's just, shot... It's just reactionary. Like, yeah, you don't need to worry no about your shots, taking your racket back, hitting the ball, recovering. It's just you're there at the net and you're reacting. You're, yeah, you're reacting. There's so much adrenaline. You, you're making decisions so quick you didn't even know what you're doing. And after you make those decisions, you'll either win the point or lose the point. Whereas if you're hitting groundies, the nerves are going to kick in. And they were kicking in for Zverev. So I think Carlos should have kept them back at the baseline got it to his forehand, and maybe that tiebreak would have changed. Maybe Carlos was going to win that fifth set. Um, I don't know, but I think that's the one tactical error that Carlos made. He was overusing the drop shot in the entire match, and Zverev was quick in getting up to them and, like, bailed Zverev out of the rallies. And the one thing about the drop shot, too, is, like, 
if you have a little bit of tension in your arms and your hands, the drop shot is not going to be, you're either going to miss it or it's going to be too short, right? Or too, too long, right? And then that's just a recipe uh, for disaster. I think Alcaraz, he missed his chance because if he's just playing his normal A1 game, he's going to beat Zverev. And he just tried to go for a little too much that he, too much that he needed to in the first couple sets, hitting winners, going for winners on shots that it wasn't there. And then, like you said, kind of being a little more bailing out in the tie break. So I don't know. I, I think, I think it was a missed opportunity for Carlos because I think his game was there if he had the right strategy on the day. Yeah. I, I can't, can't comment on this, the entire strategy, but I will say about the tie break. I think just, just the same thing with being at the net when you're hitting a drop shot, you're, you're stagnant and you have, a lot to think about. So the other thing, no, Novak hit way too many drop shots. Right. I think Novak. I think hitting a drop shot. He when he hit the drop shots from behind the baseline, it was probably not a good idea. Um, but yeah, I think there was also to be fair to Novak. I mean, what the hell could you do against Rafa that day? You had to literally just do anything and everything, and not, nothing was working. Rafa was playing so good. Novak was hitting missile forehands and missile backhands, running Rafa side to side. And the guy was just fucking there every single time, like at the ball. I, the speed of Rafa, also against Felix, Rafa looked like he was a little slow. Like that was the reason, honestly, why I thought Novak was going to win. Because against Felix, Felix had the same huge forehand, big serve. But Rafa looked like he was not laboring, but he didn't have that step. So I don't know how... Rafa found that energy, but but that was a huge thing. And that's why, and that was what induced kind of some of Novak's errors was Rafa, Rafa's speed and the fact that Novak could hit a 10 out of 10 forehand and Rafa would just be there. Right, right, right. And But so, yeah, with regards to the Zverev Alcaraz, anything else on that? Or what do you see the rest of the season for Carlos going? And where do you see the rest of the tournament going for Zverev? Um, I think for Carlos... I think he's going to go back, analyze this match, watch it, realize that if he did the right thing strategically, he probably would have won. And he's going to come back stronger in the next uh, Grand Slam. I'm not sure how he plays on grass. I know he lost last year to Medvedev pretty easily in like the first or second round. Um, but I would assume that his game would translate to grass. Maybe he'll need some growing pains, have some growing pains on that surface. But I'm interested to see him on the grass. For Zverev, I think... I mean, Vid, what do you think about Nadal's foot? Like, is that something we shouldn't even consider anymore because he's all of a sudden magically healed? Like, I, I don't I, – it's a – yeah, I don't know. Like, what do you think? He's had a five-setter and a marathon four-setter now, and his foot seems totally fine. So he said his – I mean, Nadal's with the doctor. So I think a lot of his Zverev talk is going to have to do with, honestly, Nadal. Right? Yeah, I have no idea what to think about his foot. I mean, he couldn't walk at the end of that Shapovalov match in Rome. So, I don't know. I guess we're going to have to just, by logic, say that we're not going to include the foot in this analysis. So, assuming Nadal is at the level that he played against Djokovic, which, I mean, I, I can't, we can't say that because, again, they bring out the best in each other. Even if it's a little lower, I think he's going to be able to beat Zverev, especially because of how good Rafa's, um, you know, backhand is, has been his backhand to Zverev's forehand and then Rafa's forehand down the line and inside out to, again, Zverev's weakness, Zverev's forehand. I think those two shots Rafa has just 
been playing perfectly. Uh, so I think it'll probably be a close match. I think Zverev sure has a chance. But I would see Rafa winning this in probably four sets. Uh, I think if Zverev can be a little better, more aggressive on his forehand, it's possible that he could win. Um, but not expecting it, really. Yeah, no, I would agree. I would agree with that. I think Nadal... It's not craziest. Obviously, he has the upper hand. He's fucking amazing. Um, but I think that the foot's a non-factor at this point. But as we saw in Rome, it's something that could just come out of nowhere. So I would hate to see him have to get hurt in the middle of the match and have to pull out. That's exactly actually what I was thinking during the when he was playing Novak. I was like, I just hope that we're not in the middle of an amazing match and that all EA gets hurt. But that would be just you know it wouldn't be great for anyone. So hopefully he can stay healthy. Um, throughout the match, and I think he should hopefully take care of Zverev. But like you said, I wouldn't count out Zverev at all because he is going into this match with zero pressure, and his his highest level is is you know when he's at it can be number one in the world. Um, it's just a question of being at it and staying consistent throughout the match, being able to close it out and not getting nervous. So I'm going to take Rafa as well. I think Zverev's going to um, bow out his next match, but it'll be definitely an interesting match to watch. It's just so weird that that, that was the Rafa-Djokovic match was a quarterfinal, honestly. Just so weird. Yes. I mean, crazy. I think... I think I was, the fact that Rafa has to play two match, more matches is just... I mean... Yeah. Last episode, we talked about the seeding, and I was just kind of playing devil's advocate, really, saying that they should go by the rankings. But, I mean, the bottom half of this draw... Is looks like a consolation tourney. Yeah, it does. It really does. With no, absolutely no disrespect to Casper and Marin They've been playing amazing tennis, but you compare that to guys like Alcaraz, Zverev, Nadal, and Djokovic, it looks like it's a feed-in consolation bracket, losers bracket, and they're going to play <laughs> the winner of the winners bracket <laughs> the tournament for the yeah. title. Yes. yes. All right, so that wraps it up for the top half of the draw. And before we get into the bottom half of the draw and some news stories from this week, we're going to do everyone's favorite segment. We're going to get into some trivia. It's time for some trivia. Do you be ready? I guess I'm going to be on the hot seat this week. Uh, Vid got tired of losing. He's got two trivia questions for me. And I think I have one trivia question for him that he should get correctly. But uh, Vid, why don't you start? Yeah, I have two trivia questions for you. Uh, the first one is, it, is about the Queen Iga and her 29-match win streak. I don't know. Is it now 30? I don't is know. it something about how many times she lost a set or something like that? Bullshit like that. Uh, just relax and let me just ask you the question. Uh, and you can shit on my question later after the show. But Iga is on a 29-match win streak. What is the average number of games she has lost per set during this streak? Okay, I mean, what's my margin on this? So obviously, it's going to be some sort of decimal thing, but like, yeah. what, what constitutes a correct answer? I have, to get it, I have to get it perfect on the decimal point? Like 2.34 or what? Within... Give, give me point... Give me, how about you give me point one either way? So if I get yeah, it... On, exactly, point one either way. That sounds good. Yep, it's fair. Average games lost per set. I'm going to go with 2.7. Is it 3.2? Yeah, we get one guess. Which, which, one, which guess do you want? 2.8. 2.8? 2.8. 
<laughs> okay, you are wrong and out of our range. She's lost an average of 2.4 games what? per set. How is that possible? Wait, of- I wait, 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 wait. We have a question. I have a, I have a clarifying question about the trivia. Is this um, only in sets that she's won? No. You're sure? I'm sure. Okay. Wow, that's really impressive because she's lost some sets as well. She's lost a couple sets, but she's also won a ton of sets 6-0. Yeah, I know. It's, cra- it's honestly crazy. That's even – I thought it was even – I mean, I thought I was going low, honestly. I mean, even – because I feel like you pay attention to six oh six one sets, but there's obviously the six three six fours that you don't pay attention to. So, I mean, yeah, utter domination from her. She's at another, another level right now. But okay, I'll I'll give you mine now. Pretty basic, pretty straightforward. Okay. Not too much to think about. So Marin Cilic, he's ranked in the top thirty, but he's below twenty. Just advanced to the semifinals of Roland Garros for the first time. When was the last time someone outside of the top 20 made the fi- in the men's game made a final of a major? Outside the top 20 to make a final. Yes, to make a final. In a major. It, you can definitely figure it out. In the men's game... Did, did that person win the tournament? No. We're not giving any more hints. This is not that hard of a question. What was Marin Cilic when he made the U.S. Open final? I mean, I'm not going to tell you, but... Was it Marin Cilic? No, I mean, that's, that's a pretty solid guess, I guess. He did win the U.S. Open. He was ranked... I think he was top 10 seed, but... Um, he, it was Robin Soderling at the French Open the year he beat Rafa. Oh, I was gonna say that. Oh my yeah. fucking god, it's so easy. That was the first. That was the first thing that came to my mind. I was like, that's just too easy. Yeah, he's made the finals twice. The first time he was outside the top twenty, the second time I think he was the top. That's so. so. It's such an obvious answer, and it's not. Oh my god, Jesus. Yeah, and that's literally that. You you said that. I was like, it has to be Robin Soderling. And I was like, no, maybe not. Jesus. Okay. Yep. All right. Um, so we're 0 for 2 on trivia today. Yeah, Soderling, sticking with the Scandinavian theme of this French Open, I guess. Okay. Where the fuck is he from? Sweden, right? Sweden. Yeah. Yeah. He's Swedish. Also, he just, like, his career just ended randomly. It just kind of sucked. Yeah, something he had some health issue. Yeah. That fucked. It sucks. Um, well, I'm sure Nadal's happy. We might be- yeah, I think Novak actually tried to play like Soderling a little bit with his forehand drives that he was when he was hitting his forehand drives and like like kind of when he was winning. You think, was kind of you think like- Novak? You think Novak was going back to footage of Robin Soderling and being like, "I need to play like this guy. This guy is the key." I don't know if he was going through footage of Robin Soderling. First of all, that would have been good because that was someone who beat Rafa but if he didn't I think he just came to the same conclusions maybe that Soderling did or just anyone who you know beat Rafa on clay just take that forehand and kind of rip it like Soderling does um yeah I don't know yeah he was trying to do the same thing he just he was too passive he didn't do it enough Soderling's a dog 
If Soderling didn't get his health issue, how many Grand Slams would he have? I'm going to go seven. I'm going to go zero. <laughs> yeah, that's probably right. It's <laughs> probably right. Um, okay. What do we want to talk about next? I thought you had a second trivia question or no? Do you want to do it? Yeah. Second trivia question is paying tribute to someone who bowed out of the French Open fairly early, unfortunately. Fairly? Is it Dennis? <laughs> no. <laughs> Which woman on the WTA tour made the most finals in the 2021 season? Annette. Yes, nice. I think I gave it away saying she, this person was out early the French Open. I probably would have guessed it anyway. I mean, who else is there? Who else was sort of consistent last year, right? And Annette was the best. Bedosa? No, not really. Towards the end of the year, she got better. Yeah. She won Indian Wells. Um, but, yeah. But, yeah, shout out Annette. Annette, I guess she's suffering from some post-COVID issues if her social media is simply believed. Or the rumors that her camp, like, releases. Like, I don't know. What did her camp say? Post-COVID issues. Like, she, or she was sick or whatever. Like, I don't know. Was she, whatever she had. Some sickness. Um, yeah. That was not a good loss for her. I, I called that. Check out the French Open preview pod, and you can see my terrible French Open predictions along with me calling Annette losing in the first round. So, I think you said it would be a tough first round. No, you did. You actually called her losing. You did I, call her. It, I said that I, Isla would get to the semi, so of course it meant she was going to win her first round. Coco Goff, just amazing player. But. Is that what we want to get into next? No, we got to no. get to the bottom half. Yeah, bottom, bottom half. Jacket. The consolation bracket. Uh, Chilich against Rubla. Vid, how much of this were you able to watch? I was kind of intermittently coming in and out of it. Uh, my take was that Chilich was hitting the ball like a freaking maniac. His forehand is enormous. Um, I, every time I looked at the screen, because I couldn't watch the entire thing, I was like, how is Rubla in this match? Because Chilich, his shots were just uh, on another level. He was bossing Rubla around the court. Uh, I don't know. What, what were your thoughts? Did you watch it or? Yeah, I watched, I watched it on and off. But, yeah, I mean, Chilich was just crushing forehands. It looked like he reminded me of Del Potro out there. Um, the massive serve plus one, moving well, wasn't breaking down, you know, occasionally going for a little too much, but that's expected with those huge shots. And it was back and forth a little bit. Rublo was able to hang in there, but – what stood out to me, I don't know if you had a chance to watch the tiebreak. If said tiebreak. Oh my gosh, dude. Was just maybe <laughs> one. Pressure. No pressure. And maybe one of the best tiebreaks I've seen anyone play ever. Maybe ever, honestly. And my roommate said it. I think he put it perfectly. A hot Marin Chilich is up there for one of the best players on tour. I mean, he looked very good. Will he be able to sustain against um, against Rude and into the finals? I don't know, but a hot Marin Cilic is a top caliber player. A hot Marin Cilic beats a hot Casper Rude ten out of ten times uh, in the year, and that I've never seen someone in a fifth set tiebreak or third set tiebreak just look so locked in, like he didn't even know what was happening. He was just going from point to point and was like, all I have to do is rip every forehand as hard as I can somewhere inside the court and just kept doing it. I think it was 10-2 in that tiebreak. And Rublev, 
he just didn't know what hit him, honestly. The guy was just there, standing in the middle of the street, about to get hit by a truck, and there's nothing he could do about it. Oh, kind of rem- reminded me of the Kyrgios Rublev match that we watched in Miami, that, that tiebreak, at least the whole thing, where Rublev just one of the hardest hitters on tour couldn't do anything. Exactly. I was literally about to say, it reminds me of when he played <laughs> Kyrgios in Miami, and it's just so sad. I love Andre Rublev, and it's just so sad to see him get just demolished like that. <laughs> he, was, he, was, he looked he looked helpless out there um he's lost four or f- he's lost every single time he's played a grand slam quarterfinal this was the first time he's gotten a set in a grand slam quarterfinal room left so i don't know he might be reaching a ceiling if you if you call it, if you can call it that in grand slams it's possible it's possible but also chillage was playing very good i mean they play that match Another few times, I think Rublev would get a couple. So I don't think I don't think we can say he's hit his ceiling. If he keeps banging on the door like this, um, you know he'll get his shot. Maybe another half of a draw will open up like it did in this. Tournament. A little bit of trivia with you here because it's about Marin Cilic, and I, know there's, I don't know if there's too much to say about this match. But so, what would Marin Cilic achieve if he made the finals of Roland Garros? It's a simple. He will have had the. All he would have gotten to all of the Grand Slam finals. Yes, isn't that crazy? As in the Big Four era, even Stan hasn't done. That. Stan, are we are we gonna count that as a trivia for me? A win? Sure. Well, I'll give it to you. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> um, but okay, yeah. So he's already made every every semifinal of the Slam. If he makes the finals here, he'll make every final. So I'm honestly glad. Whatever happens with this Chilich run, whether he loses to Rude, whether he wins the title. I'm glad that this tournament reminded of uh, us of the level that he can play because it seems like one of the guys, like we always think of Sanga, Burdich, a lot of the other guys. I feel like Chilich, he's actually won a Grand Slam. Sometimes he slips your mind a little bit. And, and it's, I'm just grateful that he's been able to do this and remind us of how he can play. Right. He, he has been slipping. He slipped my mind as well. But recently I've been seeing his name in draws and been like, damn, he's kind of doing – Kind well, of good stuff. Like it, Italian Open, he beat um, Cam Nori. Uh, in the Madrid Open, he had a three-setter with Zverev. Um, he, he lost to Sebastian Baez in Portugal, but also, you know, he had a three-setter with Fritz and Monte Carlo. So he's, you know, still hanging around with the top guys. And, you know, he's making kind of himself remembered and not allowing people to forget about him. So... This, this, I mean, you're right. We could have seen it coming. I mean, he, he did beat Nori last week in a tough match with Zverev. Hasn't lost any uh, – hasn't had any really bad losses this season. And he, he just is so assured of himself right, right now out there on the court. And when big hitters are not second-guessing themselves and they're not missing, I, I mean, all, all bets are off, especially when you can get free points on your serve on clay, which is rare. Exactly. I mean, he has at one point had one of the biggest – serves on tour i mean it's huge and also he's able to play off the ground he's not like a he's not like a max cressy who comes in hot with a massive serve and then can't really do much off the ground you know he's, he's a player he's a player off yeah the ground. i'm excited to watch the semifinal because making grand slam finals is such a once in a lifetime thing and yeah i honestly don't like the fact that draw was top heavy on the same token it's cool for me to be able to see one of these guys get to play potentially in a grand slam final. But you don't want any of the guys in the bottom half to win, I assume. 
well, now being chill. Are we talking about our personal opinions on the podcast now? Like who we're fans of and who we're not? Because I think that might open the floodgates for. Uh... Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, if we open if we open those floodgates, it could get pretty ugly. In my <laughs> look, I'm not gonna say who I want to win, but I don't want to win. I think it would be an incredible story if Marin Cilic won the French Open this year. I mean, probably the most unexpected story of tennis in maybe the last 10 years. I don't even know. Um, that's what I'll say. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's a good take. That's a good take. Same with Casper, if he can do it. <laughs> yeah. Should we move on to the Casper-Rune match we just watched? Um, yeah, we'll talk about that. I think we've got to talk about – I mean, I think it was a, like a salt, very good, ten, very good tennis match all around. But I was paying more attention to kind of the fireworks that were going on throughout the match. Rune, honestly, I I love I love I love his firepower. I love him kind of being you know, okay. By the way, we're gonna be using first names because I was listening to some of this on the radio, and they kept saying Rune, Rude, Rune, Rude. I had no idea who was hitting the ball. So let's go with first names for the second. Okay, okay. So I'll say Holger. I, I loved kind of his fire on the court. Yeah, he was acting a bit like a junior, um, being a little over the top with questioning every ball that landed, having the, the umpire come down for everything. But I kind of liked that from him. Um, it got under Casper's skin a little bit. And Casper at one point actually on a changeover told him to stop asking for every um, line call to be checked. So, you know, I like that heat between players, you know. These days it's so – feels like – the players are almost sometimes too nice to each other. And it was nice to see that kind of the flair in that match. Um, and I don't know if viewers who didn't, weren't able to watch the match, the handshake was something you should see. Um, and it was, it was pretty, it's pretty cold from both of them. I've never seen, you know, maybe it's that just Scandinavian rivalry. I've never seen Casper shake his head at someone or be short in a handshake, but um he was, but frankly, like you said, I like that. It shows that the young guy, um, Holger, is, is kind of getting in his head and was getting in his head a little bit. At the same time, I'm also going to say that if another player like Djokovic or a top player was doing that to Casper, there's no way he would have acted that way uh, uh, at the handshake. He would have been totally respectful uh, and everything. So maybe it's possible that Casper can show the same kind of like annoyance against a top guy and it would help him because – even when, when that initially happened, I think both guys raised their game. Both guys wanted to win. Uh, like, okay, you're not going to say wanted to win more, but they were trying to – they just got more aggressive with their shots and stuff. Yeah, exactly. I think it's – I think it is like a, you know, seniority thing, I guess you could say. You're right. If Casper was playing someone older, he would have kind of been respectful. He loves, he loves being – Casper loves being a nice guy, okay? He <laughs> loves it. He is a nice guy. He loves being a nice guy. And honestly, I think he would have put that all aside and had a nice handshake with Holger at the end. But Holger was shook his hand, didn't even look at him, and headed to his bag, which I'm also fine with that. But um, I think Casper really prides himself on being a fair, nice guy. And he didn't get to do that today because Holger was being a bit of a dick, which I'm fine with as well. When it comes to the tennis itself, I thought that Holger is just a little bit more maturity away from being just better than Casper. Like his forehand, he can do anything with it inside out, inside in. Um, his backhand down the line is really good. I think he was struggling a little bit in this match because obviously the game plan when you're playing Casper is to go to his backhand. Um, but he wasn't necessarily choosing the right shots to go to his backhand. And he was 
Um, he wasn't willing to go to Casper's forehand to open up the backhand as much. So I think from a strategy perspective, like you want to attack the backhand, but it's not always that simple. It's not always just go to the backhand side. Um, and I think Holger was maybe uh, a little too straightforward in the way he played. Casper was able to deal with his backhand a little better, hit loops, hit angles, get Holger off the court. Um, so I think in terms of just a maturity level, uh, again, it was a, I guess I wouldn't call it similar to the uh, Alcaraz match, but you could tell that Casper's just been there longer uh, from a strategy perspective and able to minimize his weakness of his backhand, whereas Holger was kind of just all out with his weapons and not as strategically placing the ball. So I think that was kind of maybe the difference. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think Holger could also, um, yeah, slow it down a little bit. I don't think, I mean, he was getting a little angry and, you know, kind of rattled throughout the match, but I don't think that affected him on point. Like, I no. don't think, I think he was just showing some flair. And I think, like you were saying, it's more so kind of the tactical decisions is why he was let down. He was almost came back when he was down you know, 40 love in that service game when it was, when it was, you know, he was, Casper was about to get a break, nearly came back a lot of times dug himself out of holes. So I don't think, I think it's, I agree with you. I think it's tactical um, more so than kind of being mature on the court, uh, I guess you could say, but that, those tactics I think will come with maturity and I, he'll probably go back, look at this match and we can't, we can't forget this is the first time, First major, yeah. he won a match, and he got to the quarterfinals. That is remarkable. I think, what was the first major he played? It was probably the U.S. Open last probably year. Probably U.S. Open, yeah. Yeah, I think it was the U.S. Open last year when he played Djokovic. A great result there, losing in four sets, getting a set off Djokovic. Awesome. And then comes into his third major, and I don't know if he played the Australian, but comes into his third, potentially third major, and gets to the quarterfinals. I think he's only uh, going up from here. Yeah, I think he lost a Quan in the first, maybe some Quan in the first round of Australia. But to beat Stefanos and then to have a match like this against Casper, where really in that third set could have gone either way, and to see his conditioning improving as well, um, it's it's good to see. I think Holger and Alcaraz both can improve their first serves. They both seem to kick it in sometimes, where they're just kind of starting the point. So I think that's one thing that uh, Holger can kind of work on. But he's going to be in the top ten and. Uh, in no time. And I think you can, same thing, you can tell that he, he's not intimidated by these guys. I think he goes on the court expecting to pull off the upset, expecting to win. So I think mentally is more important than some of these physical aspects we're talking about. And he's got it mentally. He's expecting to be in the top 10, top five soon. Right. Yeah. That, I was actually just about to say that he totally expects to be there with these guys after the quarterfinal match against Sissipas, one of the biggest, maybe I think his second biggest win of his career. They were talking to him after like he had, you know, won the tournament, but he, he acted very cool, calm, collected after that win. Obviously, a big, you know, come on, a, bit, a little bit of a celebration, but he's not he's not overly joyous acting like he just won some sort of title. And he even said that in the post-match interview on the court, saying this is only the quarterfinals, um, the tournament's not over, and was talking about um, his mom and his team. And he's like, you know, I'll talk a bit about my team now, but I know that this is not the finals, and, you know, I haven't won anything yet, which is – Amazing to see it shows that he has a ton of confidence in himself and he knows that he'll be there again. Yeah, I mean, you saw that demeanor from his box as well, to be honest. I mean, even to, even today, like, his, his, his mom was kind of a little disappointed with the way he was playing and walked away from the court. I'm, I'm not, I don't think that's a bad thing. Like, I think it's a good thing. It's like you always want to expect 
your player to win. We've seen Daniil Medvedev's coach kind of employ the same tactic. Contrast that a little bit with Casper's box and like after the win, which was obviously, look, it's a great win against Bulgar Rune, but you expect to win that match. Um, you saw them kind of like breaking down in tears, acting like Casper had like won the entire tournament. So it's going to be interesting to see how Casper comes out against Chilich because you mentioned post-match comments. Casper also said he mentioned the final, you know, in his post-match comments. Um, I don't think he should be, and he said, obviously, I have to play in the semis, but you can see Casper already thinking about the final. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure that bodes well uh, for him. But, we'll, yeah, what, I mean, what are your thoughts on the Casper uh, chilich matchup for the match uh, for uh, potential place in the, in the final? I think that I would like to take Marin in that match because his game of hitting those, you know, flat through the court massive shots will stack up well against Casper because Casper has more of that, you know, heavy topspin a little bit, I mean, I'm not going to compare him to Nadal, but it's a similar game style in the sense. And if Marin does what he did against Rublev today, um, I don't know if he'll be able to – I think that ball will sit up a little for him and he'll be able to use his height and start driving those balls through the court. And if he's, you know, hitting with margin, hitting big, not getting tight, and if his body holds up, I think he definitely has a shot at, at, at beating Casper. So Casper hits a lot of those backhands, which is obviously his liability, as kind of almost loops back into the deep, maybe deep in the court, maybe a little short in the court, backhand loops that kind of sit up. And for some guys that are a little shorter, maybe it's hard for them to hit necessarily hit a winner on those like Casper backhands. I think Marin is going to be able to take an advantage of those and rip like drives from both his forehand and his backhand, which will able, I think he'll basically be able to exploit Casper's backhand more than someone who didn't have that that pace of a shot, I guess. Mm -hmm. Do you have any concerns with Marin's body, fitness, holding up? He's a little older. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, no, I do. I would say I'm more concerned about him just starting to miss and just not play at the level that he's been playing this week. Because I'm not going to say that he's it's going to happen, but I think on an average day, like Casper is always going to be consistent. He's going to be steady and he's going to be inducing errors from his opponent. So I'm more worried about just the overall game level dropping as than I am the fitness, because like I said, his, the muscle memory, it stays, it stays there. Like I think it, same with Nadal, like Chilich has played five sets for so long. He knows, has a routine, knows how to prepare, knows how to recover. He's been through that uh, process. So I, and he's not that old. He's like 34, I think, 33. I think he's 33. 30, so I, I, I'm not worried about that. I'm more worried about just some of these forehands and backhands that he's hitting missing and then Casper gaining the confidence from being more solid. Yeah, no, I think I, think I agree with that. Who's, who's, who, so who's your picks for the both semis? My, 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 we're making formal picks? Yeah, we're not saying who we're rooting for, but I think we can make formal picks. Um, I will go Nadal is going to beat Zverev. And I think that, I think Casper is going to beat Chilich. Yeah, I'm going to go with Chilich. I think Chilich is going to win. I just, the, the, his forehand and he just, to me, was the best shot out of like anyone in that half of the draw. So I'm going to go Chilich and Rafa, yeah. And I think Zverev could potentially win. 
<laughs> we'll see what happens. Maybe, maybe you go a little, little underdog action. Underdog money line parlay. Underdog money line parlay. Is that <laughs> is that the move? Uh, what do you? I mean, I don't, I don't know. I wonder what chill it, what these odds are actually. Let's look it up. Okay, well, yeah, I mean, Zverev's plus 240. I think that's a fine, yeah. I, there, there's no odds for Chilich weird match yet. But Zverev's plus 240, Nadal's minus 330. I wouldn't bet on either of those odds, to be honest. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah we're, not, we're not here to give betting advice, but uh, we will have a guest on soon who will be, and that'll be our friend Ron Lubarski. We're going to introduce a segment, Lines with Luba, and he'll be able to give you top-notch betting advice. He is um, actually his form of income is betting. So he'll be able to really give you spot on advice and we'll have him on the show soon. He's in the professional space, but potentially he can give us some insights as to why certain lines are certain ways and how bookmakers see different players. Um, just a different lens to look things, look at things through. But really, yeah, really a sharp guy and we're really looking forward to having him on. So that's our thoughts on what's happened with the wild uh, U.S. or French open men's draw. The women has also been, uh, you know, crazy events. All the top seeds pretty much are out except for who you'd expect it to be, Iga Sviantek. Um, you know, you had Bedosa losing early, Kontavite losing early, Ons lost in the first round. A lot of these contenders that we spoke about before the tournament are no longer in the tournament for, for Iga. We said that she was going to have kind of a tough draw. Halep was in there. Um, you know, potentially Ossipenko. They both lost before they even were able to get there. This seems to happen a lot in these women's majors where you have certain players that you're looking at um, coming into the event. Uh, they've, all been, they've all been put aside, and Iga's kind of there on her own right now. You've got Coco Goff, probably the second favorite to win it, uh, who's still in and playing good tennis. But um, And also, this, you know, the women's – it's also highlighted the difference between two out of three and three out of five sets because there are a lot of men who would have been out in the first round, second round, uh, Tsitsipas, um, Zverev, Alcaraz, if this was a two out of three set situation. Um, but uh, anything can happen in these matches. And unless you're just head and shoulders above everyone else like Iga is, um, you can easily lose. So uh, I don't know, but what, what's your, been your thoughts so far, kind of the whole tournament and going into – uh, the semifinals here, maybe the quarters, what happened with that? Yeah, no, I think it's crazy how early a lot of these top seeds lost. And I think that, you know, what we see with Iga continuing her run through the draw is phenomenal. And I think it, we can't see it any other way um, as than her winning the title. I think I think we've seen some good recent results from Castaquina, so I'm not too surprised – to see her in there. And with regards to Coco Goff, I'm surprised that Sloan Stevens really got that deep into the draw. Making it to the quarterfinals, I think, was very big for her. I know, Drew, you were talking um, during our preview about Jill Teichman and how well she was doing it. She was actually your pick to make it through to the semis. So I think that was... I had really her in the finals, yeah. Or yeah, you had her in the finals. I think that was a really big win for Sloan and to get all the way through the quarters. And I also think it's about time that we see um, Coco Goff in the semifinals, hopefully a final and potential champion of a major. She's so, still so young. 
And now is really her time to, you know, push it through and hopefully uh, do some damage. Remember, she's only 18 years old. We started talking about her when she was 15. So if she wins the French Open, she will have as many majors as Emirata Kanu at the age of 18. So I think people forget um, how young she still is, or at least at least I do. Yeah, I think it's because when you make your breakthrough and you're kind of a regular tour player, um, you think of someone, oh, she made her breakthrough three years ago when she did really good at Wimbledon or made the third or fourth round. But there's multiple layers of ceiling that you have to kind of break through, and you don't know when that's going to happen, right? We saw it with Holger uh, winning his first ATP title, and then finally this Grand Slam, he, he kind of busted through that roof. And potentially now it's going to be that time for Coco because I do think she's been a little bit off of people's radar in terms of a young star, but she's younger than Emma. She's younger than uh, Layla, a lot of these girls. And I, th I still think that she has so many holes in her game relatively that um, when she reaches that point, it's going to be something incredible to see. Uh, but yeah, Katsuskina, someone we weren't really talking about before the tournament, but last week uh, she did beat Bedosa, beat Teichman as well, and then lost to Ons in a close three set or seven, five in the third. So maybe not the most surprising, but at the same time though, for me, like some of these players who do make like the quarters and who are, you haven't really been talking about, it takes the interest a little bit out because it's not like the men's where it's really rare that something like that happens and it's cool, but it seems like it happens almost like every major. And I'm going to be honest, like I haven't been paying attention to Martina Trevisian's year that closely. It's great to see her make the semis, but I would also say it'd be cool to see the top seeds make it to the semis, you know? I, I don't know. No, I, I agree with that. I think it's just the nature of the women's game. Um, and like you pointed out, also the fact that they're playing two out of three sets, not three out of five. So I think that's why you see so much, you know, volatility in the results and coupled with some other factors as well. Um, I totally agree with you. I did not see Martina uh, getting to this quarterfinals, semifinals. I actually remember looking at her first round. I was not looking at her. I was looking to see how Harriet Dart did. And I was like, wow, Harriet Dart got freaking smoked. And why did she just get smoked to this girl? And now this girl's in the semifinals. So I guess it was a reasonable smoking. And um, so – I just, I just, my... There hasn't been any of those marquee matchups. Like, the, like Ostapenko against Iga would have been so cool, but Ostapenko lost to Cornet, you know? Um, Halep, Halep would have been cool, too, but she lost to that, the girl who, who took a set off of Iga. They just, they haven't been there in the women's draw, you know? And like you pointed out earlier, or before, during our preview, we, it was a, there was a potential for a Radicanu-Fernandez clash. and Quarterfinal, yeah. Quarterfinal, and Layla... Held her, held up her side of that, got to the quarterfinals, and Emma obviously did not, so we weren't able to see that. But um, a good, a good match um, during the quarterfinals. Layla had um, three setter, didn't came up short, but yeah. With regards to the volatility in the women's game, I just think it's the nature of it. I think, um, may, hopefully, we'll see kind of maybe at Wimbledon some of the top seeds getting to the end. And I feel like we see that a lot in the one thousand events, the smaller events. Um, the top seed's getting through a lot, but less so in the majors. Why is that? I don't know. Maybe it's because they're over a extended period of time. I think that's the only thing that I could think of. It's, you know, it's not a 10-day event. It's not a week event. It's it's two weeks. Um, you're getting it. Yeah. The other thing I'll say is I think it's like one of these things where it's a snowball effect is that you other girls who are lower ranked, they see big upsets happening, 
And they're like, I can do that too. And you can even see it sometimes in, in these first round matches. Like I think it was Ons' opponent who, who beat her, like a couple other upsets. They weren't necessarily, like, it gives other people confidence when they see this happening all the time, you know? I, and that's, that's part of it as well, I think. Exactly, yeah. They're walking on with some, onto the court with some belief. Whereas someone who's playing Novak or Rafa first round, I don't think they're walking on with a lot of belief um, in that they're going to win. And they'll, they'll come off happy if they get a set. Um, I don't think that's the case on the women's side. Yeah, and I, in terms of Iga, I think there's just no reason to think that she's going to lose this tournament. I think she's going to win the semis and straight sets. And unless Coco can win and then really raise her game to a level we haven't seen before, Iga's going to win because we already saw Iga kind of tested um, in her, uh, I believe it was her quarterfinal match or round 16. Would you say um, would you call that a test or would you call that her losing the first set? I, if you lose a first set, that means it's a test because at that point you're down a set. And not only that, she played pretty decently well in the first set. She was missing a little more, but the other girl was putting her under pressure and kind of showing her shots that she hadn't before. So I think when you lose the first set and then and honestly, Iga looked not in a great mental place. She was complaining to her box, missing a lot, kind of like slapping her racket on the ground. She went in for a break between the first and second set, came out, cool, calm, collected, and was able to win the next set 6-0 and then close it out 6-2. So, uh, yeah, even if Iga happens to like lose a first set or something, I'm not worried. And I think that I can't wait to see her win the title. She embodies everything that it means to be a champion, everything that it means to be a world number one, uh, going down a set, facing some adversity, and then finding her game. She reminds me of, like, you know, all these Novak Djokovic, Nadal, honestly, these guys, when they go down, you're never worried. I'm never worried when she's down or in a hole. Um, you're right, she was getting a little, a little pissed off during that match, but um, I was still fairly confident she'd come back and win and just kind of mauled the girl in the second two sets. I think it was 2-0, and oh, right? Yeah, 2-0, 0-2. Oh, it also helps with your confidence when you have just a like the forehand that's just a nuclear weapon. I mean, it's faster than a guy's um, and able to absorb pace, able to take off pace. So I guess I'm interested to see potentially her getting tested. But the only thing that is unfortunate for me is I think if she gets tested, it's not going to be someone raising their game to her level. It'll be maybe her dropping her game for some reason. So uh, I just don't see anyone. And no one's peak level is at her level right now. Yeah, I agree with that. So I think, I don't think we even need to talk about who we think is going to get through. I guess we could, who do you think is going to get through on the other semifinal? I'm going to say Coco just because I think she's better. But I also thought that, Layla was going to beat Trevisan after Layla was able to beat Bencic. Um, another huge win. So I think it's just that one's totally unpredictable. Um, maybe if Trevisan's the underdog, I'll bet on her. But uh, I would say straight up, I think Coco will, will win against the final. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I don't know either. I guess I, I, th- I think Coco is going to win, but I, I don't know. It could be, could be Trevisan. It's, uh, she's had a Coco's great serve is like sometimes gets a little nervy her serve can be a weakness so if she gets you know weak on her serve we've seen Trevisan's had some great returns this tournament so that could be an opening for her but but yeah I think I think it's a toss up there and then who do you think Castaquina or Iga I'm gonna go with Castaquina wins more than three games but Iga wins 
<laughs> you think you think Castaquina will will push that that two point four two point four games per set stat for Ego? Will she push that? I think it's gonna be like two and three. So yeah, she'll be above she'll be above the average, I guess. I think yeah, Ego's gonna win. I think one set will get to six three at least. The other one will be six. I don't know. <laughs> it could be four and one, two and three. I don't think it's gonna get past to five. I don't think she'll get to five any of the set, any of the sets. Yeah, well, I think I think we both think that Ego's gonna win it. Uh, so that recaps our thoughts on both the men's and women's uh, French Open. Roland Garros heading into the semis. We're getting to the business end of the tournament here. Um, history is going to be made, but history was also made this year at Roland Garros. Um, we're going to get into some news stories now, more newsy stories. First year with a Roland Garros night session, not something that's typically done. Uh, we saw yesterday that was the Rafa match against Novak and then uh, today, Casper against Holger Rune, both ending well past midnight, past 1 a.m. And if it went longer, it could have potentially, you know, if they were five set matches, three or four a.m. Uh, we've seen some players, like, I guess, complain about this. It, just a very cold out there and night in Paris in the 50s, can get down to the 50s, Fahrenheit. Um, not the fans are not the big, biggest fan of it because the transportation is hard. The players don't love it, but. It's more of a TV deal. I don't know, but what are your thoughts on the Roland Garros night session so far? Uh, I'll say as an external spectator, I enjoy it. I think it's um, great to see the crowds getting really rowdy at night. I think the level of tennis didn't drop. Maybe the players don't like it as much, but I didn't see the level drop. I think it just brings in a new dynamic. Um, having to play at night, you're not going to get the same conditions all the time. It may favor one player over the other. And I think it's okay in terms of the late night matches because it's a grand slam. I know it's five sets, but they're getting a day off. And even after this quarterfinal match, Nadal's going to have two days off. So I don't think in that sense that it's too bad in terms of recovery for the next match. It's not like he had to get up the next day and play another match. And also I think it helps kind of the economics of it. You're going to likely get more viewers at night. Ratings, I assume, are going to go up. I assume that's going to bring in more money for everyone involved in the production so I think I don't see too many negatives other than that the, you know the players don't like the scheduling and sure it's an, probably very annoying if you are getting to bed at you know 4 a.m. 4 a.m. 5 a.m. Um, uh, if you're a player and we see that in Acapulco and it really affects the players so I think from that side I understand it but from all the other sides I, I, I can see why they wanted to add a night session um, what, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I can say from the fans' perspective, especially being here in the United States, um, it's great because you can get you – can, you can watch tennis into the afternoon, early evening, even like up to 7, 8 o'clock, and you're able to see basically both of these matches. Um, the only thing that I think is a negative is the conversation around who benefits more if it's during the day and at night. And sure, like there's some day sessions matches that may go into the night. I'm sure they should have lights. But before the Novak against Rafa match, like both camps were lobbying for what they wanted. Rafa wanted to play during the day and Novak wanted to play at night. Um, and then even after it was decided, you saw a lot of Rafa fans that were mad about it. Clearly it didn't impact him at all because he took it to Novak and was able to create the same amount of spin. So I think when the playability of the court is so different that the schedule determines kind of who you think might win, 
that is an issue. And yeah, I think, I think players going to bed at four or 5. AM, even if they do have a day off that can throw them off rhythm. If you think about like the difference between Chilich and Kasparud, Chilich finishes during the day, has his dinner, has a great night's sleep tonight. Casper is going to be going to bed at four or 5. AM less recovery. And I mean, yeah, you get a day off, but you're also playing three out of five sets. So I think I'm more neutral on it, not necessarily pro or con. I think the only other thing we have to say about this is that it was supposed to be kind of highlighting the best matches. Only one women's match was put in night session out of 11 total. I don't know if there's anything you want to say about that. I think the women seemed pretty happy. They didn't have to play that late, actually. But at the same time, it is meant to highlight it and get more viewers on the sport. So that, that's obviously negative for the game of women's tennis. Yeah, I, I think... I think it is a negative for the women's tennis game. But that being said, we kind of highlighted when we were just kind of recapping what's happened in the women's draw that there weren't any really kind of marquee matchups that we saw throughout the tournament or even that will happen besides the final. Um, So I think, I don't know if it's that's why they didn't put it on or whether there were, you know, men's matches, they're favoring the men over the women. I don't know their rationale behind putting no women on at night. But I think that there was be- one match. I think it was like the French girl who played at night. But there was out of twelve, it was only only one. Yeah. Yeah, but I think I think it'd be an interesting question for the women and ask them whether they're care more about kind of being televised and getting more attention highlighted, yeah, or what they care more about, um, kind of the time of day they're playing and if they enjoy the day session more than the night session. So I think it's just an interesting question that you'd have to ask some of the female players on tour yeah i mean i agree it's not necessarily the best case study and i don't think that there should be quotas necessarily um like they should do the exact even amount six and six uh or or whatever but i personally think something like the layla fernandez against anna sova match could have definitely been considered and especially if there's been so few women's matches that have been like at night it could be nice to maybe have a few more but yeah i agree there weren't like a ton of marquee matchups if you will so we don't know if Iga you know if Iga would have played um uh, Halep if that could have been one or if Bedosa played Rabakina but because those matchups just didn't happen um but I still think I think one is probably too little overall um want to highlight the women's game highlight women's tennis but yeah yeah no I I agree um I agree I don't think a quota is the right call but you know we both know you know you're turning on uh, a match on tennis channel when there's kind of multiple going on and they're showing some trash matchup. Um, and the other one is, you know, a lot more enticing. Uh, you always wonder why they choose to show that one. And sometimes they're showing it maybe for a reason and maybe sometimes they're not. So um, I agree. I think the women should get more slots at night just to get more coverage around it, but also there weren't that many. Like... Exactly. But also, you know, there were no, no big matchups. So hopefully we'll see that next year. Hopefully there'll be some big matchups so we can uh, revisit this topic and get a real kind of opinion on it. Yeah, so let's go to the like Roland Garros crowd. They've been a little more rowdy this year, it feels like, um, and especially in the Novak-Rafa match. Also, I think the Novak's complaining about the crowd has been a, gone a little bit over the top. It's like he's had this happen his entire career. You can tell it's he's frustrated. He's letting it get to him more than it ever has, I think. Um, but, yeah, what are your thoughts on, like, the crowd crowd behavior in general, I guess, in tennis? And specifically Roland Garros. But, I, yeah, I think Novak may be a little too complaining this tournament about the crowd. 
Um, I, I mean, if if they're talking like when he's serving, I think it's I think it's fine. And he he's had like you said, he's had issues with that his whole his whole career, and he's you know let it get to him his whole career. But I don't really think it affects his game. I think it really fires his, him up, to be honest, and kind of motivates him because he kind of loves he loves that kind of mentality, getting fired up and things like that. But with regards to the crowd, not the French Open crowd, but I think we'll say the Paris crowd is phenomenal. And I think the best in tennis because they bring so much energy. It's hard to believe the players don't love it, whether it's in Roland Garros or at the Paris um, 1000 in November. I mean, the stands are rocking, the music is bumping. And I think everyone who's there loves it. The spectators, the players. And I think it's something that I wish would be the case at, let's say, the U.S. Open or other tournaments um, around the world. Yeah, I agree. And I think with tennis, we always need to be looking at how we can expand our reach, how we can expand the fans. And some people see tennis as something that's not that fun. You have to kind of sit there quietly. So I'm all for fans getting into it, fans getting rowdy. And you can be rowdy without being disrespectful and yelling in the middle of someone's serve toss. So those things can both happen. I know with golf, they have one event in Phoenix. It's called the Waste Management Open. And on that, you know, in that tournament, they have a few holes that are just stadiums where the fans are basically, it's kind of an unsaid rule. Usually in golf, you're supposed to be kind of quiet, but you can just go crazy the whole time. So I think it would be good, honestly, to have some events around tennis that were more like that and just catered to sort of more people's interest to, uh, that, that could be avenues for people to, uh, fans of the game to be more interested. Yeah, I think you get that in Davis Cup maybe, but, you know, people aren't the average. Davis Cup is also kind of like that. Yeah, the average. More from the, more from the players in the crowd. Right, right. But the average person is, you know, in America especially, is not going to go check out check out the Davis Cup that's going on. So if they could make one of, I don't know you know how you implement that, but make one of the more mainstream tournaments um, a little more rowdy and kind of just see how that works out. Um, I think it would be kind of a good case study going forward to see if it draws draws more people in. I don't really know if that's, do you know if that's a deterrent for people? Like I, like people that don't, fans? Well, they're not really into tennis. Do you think they're like, oh, I don't want to go to the U.S. Open or, or I don't want to go to this um uh, I don't think it'll be a deterrent for people, but I think it'll be something that would be a, whatever the opposite of deterrent is, like they would want to go if they saw something where I can be rowdy, as rowdy as I want, if that makes sense. I think you're looking for the word attraction. Yeah, but yeah, not really, but yeah. So like this, this Phoenix tournament, this waste management tournament, whatever, there's fans that are like literally get there at 6 a.m. and start freaking yelling and just get, getting hyped before the, the first tee has even started. So can you imagine like, a tournament order of play starting at 11 and people are just getting rowdy and getting, getting drunk and about to watch like some first round match. Like, that would be so, uh, so cool to see. And I, it's like, exactly do a test tournament, make it an ATP 250 or ATP 500 where that's the culture. And if the players don't want to play it, they don't have to, but I'm sure it would be a very interesting experiment. Yeah. One more thing on this. Would you, so would you say you can be as rowdy as you want? Do you still have to be quiet during the points or can you just, is it like college tennis? You can just do whatever the hell you want. I think that's going to have to be up to the tournament organizer. But I say, why don't you just go for it? Like, free for all. Like, you can do whatever you – like, the fans can just go crazy the whole time um, and just see where it goes. If it's, if it's too much, then you could ration it down. But I, I'm all for radical ideas in tennis, like, to change the sport, as long as it doesn't, like – not, like, changing it to, like, a 10-point tiebreak or something, like, scoring-wise. But 
yeah, I would do it. I would say as rowdy as possible. Why not? Love that take. That's a great take. Should we end it on that and talk about the Wimbledon point system? Uh, yeah, let's talk about it. Uh, I, this obviously happened probably about a week ago. Um, for those of you who don't know, Wimbledon banned Russian players due to the uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine, the war going on in Ukraine. Um, so I guess Wimbledon's take on it, their perspective is uh, similar to sanctions as you know, different countries sanction Russia. It hurts the Russian people. We have to hurt Russian tennis players, not allow them uh, to play in our tournament because I guess they think <laughs> uh, peripherally like, like that shows a message to the world that we're supporting Putin's invasion and saying it's okay because we allow Medvedev and Rublev to play. So essentially the ATP's response to that, which I, I agree with Vid, is that this is discrimination against a player of a certain nationality. They can't control what their government does. They, has, they have no control over Putin bombing whatever country he's gonna bomb. So their stance was that they're against Wimbledon banning players because it's discrimination based on country of origin. Um, and so what the ATP did was they're taking away all the ranking points from Wimbledon. So usually you get 2,000 for winning the event. Now it's going to be zero. Uh, same with WTA. They've taken all the ranking points away from Wimbledon. This means that, you know, Nadal, Djokovic, if they win the event, their ranking won't be affected by it. For me personally, I think this was a bad decision by Wimbledon to ban Russian players. It's not like Vladimir Putin is sitting bombing Ukraine and saying, oh, they didn't let Daniil Medvedev play in Wimbledon. Now I'm going to stop bombing Ukraine. That's not going to happen. Um, but I think it was compounded. I think this is even a worse decision by the ATP because they're hurting their players. They're hurting people who did really well last year are going to have points drop off. And yeah, it's just a short side decision. I think on both ends, it's getting very petty. And latest is that Wimbledon is going to be suing, uh, suing the ATP for this decision. So I will say my take on this is obviously I don't think Wimbledon should have banned the players. I don't think – I think what the ATP did and WTA did was correct in taking the points away. You said it, you don't think it was correct, but I just think – I don't know why they're having the points drop off. They should just, they should just keep those points as they were. That's yeah. not – also, because it's like the Wimbledon keeps double, and it's like someone who, like, someone who makes the finals this year has, less, has no points, and someone who made the finals like a year and a half ago has the same. That doesn't make sense either. But then, they're, they're, then so you're, the points have to just go away completely. I guess that, that honestly does make sense, to be honest. Yeah, you're right. But I don't know. I think, I think the right approach overall would have been what Andre Rublev. He's like, why don't you just let us play, keep everything normal, and then take any prize money that we earn and donate it to Ukraine. Like, why don't they just do that? The other thing is that these kind of decisions, banning Russian players, actually gives Putin – I don't want to get too into the geopolitical argument, but he can sell this thing that Russians uh, are being screwed over abroad and, and stuff like that. It, it helps the regime. And it, it also feels like Russians are kind of, un, which they are being unfairly punished. They have no control over what their, their government is doing. And if anyone speaks out against it, you know, Putin's going to pay their family a visit and basically say, yeah, you can't speak out against this war. So they're in a, they're in a really tough situation. I think in terms of Wimbledon itself, some players are saying the ranking points make such a big difference. I think the prestige is probably the number one thing 
for Wimbledon, the prestige of the event, the prize money is second, ranking points third. But I don't know if you think that there's an asterisk on this event because of this whole controversy surrounding it. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. We're getting so many asterisks. We have the COVID asterisks. We have... Yeah, it's like can't, no one can play these tournaments anymore because there's so many restrictions. I, I disagree with you on the points front because maybe while it may not be an issue for, you know, Djokovic, some guys at the top, guys maybe who didn't do that well in the year before, but there are guys who, you know, maybe did very well in Wimbledon and don't even have a chance to defend those points or, and are going to drop significantly in the rankings. And it's going to really affect uh, whether they're getting into tournaments if they're going to have to play qualifying and things of that nature. So I think I disagree with you a bit there. The points for some players, uh, it's going to be an issue not being able to defend. No, them. no, the further I agree. And this is kind of, it should it goes on said, but the further that you get in an event, the more the points matter as opposed to maybe the other things. So like Martin Fuskovic, for example, he, I think made the quarters last year. He has no way of defending those points. He's going to drop from like 60 down to like the mid one fifties and have no chance to, Help his point. And, and on the same token, like Dennis is Dennis Shapovalov made the semis last year, can't defend those points, drop out of the top 20. So I'm not saying it doesn't, it's not important. I just think that the prestige of the event and the money of the event is more important. I mean, what do you think? Are they not going to be able to play next year? Because it's not like Putin's invasion is going to stop. I mean, yeah, like you said, we don't want to get into talk. This isn't freaking CNN or Fox News or whatever the hell you follow, but. Um, but yeah, I don't think this thing's gonna end in a year. Like this is gonna be like an ongoing war, and are they gonna ban Russians forever? So I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think they should. I think the whole thing's stupid. But I mean, the ironic thing about this is, if Nadal wins the French Open and wins Wimbledon, he'll have won the first three Grand Slams of the year, and he won't be number one. Medvedev will be number one because he didn't do well at Wimbledon last year, so he doesn't get that many points that drop off. So kind of ironic, but. Yeah, I think it's just a shit show all around. And then Wimbledon should just let Russian players in. Yeah, I think they should re- let Russian players in. We need to stop, stop stop, banning Russian players, stop not letting people play tournaments, and just let everyone play everything. Then we don't need any asterisks. We don't need to say what if this, what if that. I think just let everyone play everything. Australia, government, if you're listening, lift that ban on Novak for three years. That's completely unnecessary. And, you know, these guys want to play tennis. The fans want to watch tennis. So I think this whole thing is just a disaster. Yeah, total disaster. Always ends up so messy when you try to, you try to combine politics and athletics. But they're just not, not so